Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Coming up later on the show, I tell a Texas crowd the unsexiest story ever told about restaurant dating. If I was working at a particular restaurant and I was not entangled in some kind of sexual complication with someone else at that restaurant, I'm not sure I worked at that restaurant. But first, we just came back from Austin, having done an amazing show there with the ladies of Bedpost Confessions. And so in honor of that, this episode is all about sex. Yes, it's the All Terry Nunn episode, finally. No, but it is the soundtrack series Sexy Sassy Pants episode. Though let's be real, how dirty sexy do you think this is going to get, considering I couldn't get through an intro to this without making two jokes, neither of which were very good, one of which was to call this Sexy Sassy Pants. I am five years old. But we were in Austin for our first ever collaboration with this amazing show there called Bedpost Confessions. Bedpost is actually more than a show. It's a community now of people that get together to talk about sex, fiction and nonfiction stories, other forms of spoken word, even secrets. There's a part they call Confessions, where the audience anonymously writes secrets about their sexual lives, and then they're read on the mic. This show is huge. I'm telling you, it's run by three women, Julie Gillis, Sadie Smythe, and Mia Martina, and they are legendary in Austin. They do the show at the North Door, and they pack that place. I'm serious. There had to be like 350 people at this show, and they pull that kind of crowd every month. So I guess people like talking about sex, huh? How about it? So here is where we came in. We were, well, the music part. Music plays a big part in our sexual lives, maybe more than we'd initially realized before we sat and really thought about it. It's no secret that sex sells in music in general, but the role it plays in our everyday naked time is pretty big. Just off the top of my head, we have songs for crushes. Whenever I have a crush on someone, I manage to find out at least one band that guy likes, and then I listen to that constantly. It's not because I want to like all the music he likes, but because I always felt like listening to someone else's favorite music when he's not around makes me feel closer to him. And that my already constant thoughts of him become that much more vivid and present when I'm hearing his music. For me, this is varied from De La Soul to Patti Smith, and one weird time, Queensryche. Songs for losing virginity. These just happen. If music is on for that first time, sometimes it's planned and it's great. Sometimes whatever song you get, you get. For me, I kind of planned it, but only right in that moment. Thing is, I lost most of my virginity when I was 20 and then the rest of it when I was 23. And so this is about the the 23 time. And it was somebody I, I had worked with. And I thought, you know what, let's just get rid of the rest of this. And, and he'll do fine. And we were in my apartment. And at the time, I had one of those three-disc CD changers. And it had just changed over from Changes Bowie to Led Zeppelin three. And I didn't think of it. But as Immigrant Song starts, I think, oh, my God, 
this would be so cool for the rest of my life to be able to tell people that I lost my virginity to immigrant song. And so I'm like, oh, this is going to happen. And I don't know why, but he picked that moment to say, don't fall for me, Dana. And I go, no problem. And I don't think he expected me to say that. And so then he said, what do you mean? Why did you say that? And I'm like, I don't want to talk right now. Oh, my God. Just do it right now. This is not a very long song. So we did make it in time. The song was Immigrant Song, but I had to push for it. Songs for slam dunks and sure things every time. Yeah. See Angelo, comma, D apostrophe. Good Lord. When Black Messiah came out, it seemed like everyone on Facebook was suddenly announcing their pregnancies. Coincidence? Nope. There are no coincidences when it comes to D'Angelo. Songs for making it awkward. One time, I had been watching the Golden Girls on DVD, and then this guy I was seeing came over, and we went in the other room, and once the DVD came to an end, it just went back to the main menu, which plays the Golden Girls theme over and over on loop. He finally had to ask me if we could not do this while the Golden Girls theme played in the background. Because, yeah, huge fan, but even I'll admit that is a terrible soundtrack to Sexy Time. Songs we didn't know were actually about sex, and so now it's really weird. We're singing them in the car on a road trip with our parents. Jailhouse Rock is about prison sex. Did you know that? Tusk is about an erection. Ticket to Ride is kind of about prostitutes. Turning Japanese is about masturbating, as is Shebop. It was bad enough when a song like I Want Your Sex would come on the radio during a quick trip to Kmart, but to hear your mom belt along with I really think so, think so, think so, think so, and then turn to you and say, I like this song. I'm cringing now, and it hasn't even happened in a good 25 years. Songs for when it's over. No, really, over. I read some interview once where Tori Amos said something like, people don't turn to her when they're feeling all peanut butter and jelly, but that she's great for when the vampires come out or something like that, you know, so that pretty much what she said. So bringing these two shows together, one about music, one about sex was a no brainer. All kinds of this stuff that I was just talking about, songs for this, songs for that, came out in the show the other night. The ways in which music is just there throughout our most powerful sexual moments or feelings. Even in the confessions part where people tell secrets, audience members were telling us how the theme from Shaft still brings up sexy stirrings or that they want to have sex to Marilyn Manson or complete silence. No gray areas. People certainly are definite and absolute when it comes to music and sex. Our first storyteller of the night was writer Mariah Gossett, and she told a story about men and music and how as her taste in music would change, even improve, so did her taste in men. Bicycle Race by Queen was our anthem. The chorus rings, I want to ride my bicycle, I want to ride it where I like. <laughs> and to us, not only did that mean riding our bikes around town, but it was also the perfect innuendo for having sex when and where we wanted. Then, spoken word performer Asia Day got into the sexiness of the Beatles, but not Ticket to Ride. The uh, story goes that he was working on two different songs, one called I Want You and one called She's So Heavy. But I think he's telling her, Yoko, I want you. But when he gets to the hook, it's a self-reflection and like a deep internal process of saying, she's so heavy. She's so heavy. Like he can't even help, he can't even control his emotions toward her. He couldn't help it if he wanted to, help, um, if he wanted to express his emotion towards her. 
And then, this part of the song right here is after four and a half minutes, you realize that he no longer knows what he wants to, how, what he's trying to say to her anymore. And then you just have this three minutes here of pure magic. And then, of course, as I was saying before, there's the music that underscores losing your virginity. For me, it was immigrant song, so I kind of did get to pick it, even though it came pretty close to that song being Friends. But, as I said before, we don't always get to pick it. Sometimes it's just whatever's there, like for Julie Gillis. So we were all like hard edge and college rock and grit. And the song that stuck with me for the holy moment, cherry-plucking passage of sacred get-down, <laughs> the tones that clung to me like a fermata, making me think even to this day about him and our tolerable, clumsy sex, was the fucking bangles. And their saccharine-laced, cavity-inducing, number one on the pop sugar charts, Ode to Forever, Eternal Flame. Or for Sadie Smythe. My first high school boyfriend was named BJ. <laughs> Tr truly. Uh, uh, and BJ drove a black Pontiac Fiero. And it was in that sweet piece of fiberglass engineering that I was shepherded towards my entrance into sex, which took place in his bedroom one winter night as Tears for Fears, Head Over Heels played loudly in the background. Now, I remember being in middle school and reading some insane article like in People or Us Weekly. I was probably at the dentist. And it was about women who reported that the sound of someone's singing voice could give them orgasms, though that someone was Michael Bolton. I'm wondering, though, if what they were really having was seizures and they just didn't know the difference. And I'm worried about these women. I hope they're okay today. But Mia Martina kind of gets how this could happen, though, just not with Michael Bolton. I threw myself on the floor in a heaving ball of bliss. And as Kurt Cobain drew out his last moan, I orgasmed. <laughs> spontaneously orgasmed without having touched myself dancing in my friend's house while five friends looked on completely clueless as to what had just happened. As I mentioned before, sex to music can be unplanned, like that Golden Girls fiasco, or it can be planned. You can preset a playlist for this particular moment in your life. And during the show, Andy Campbell schooled us all on the songs that are great soundtracks for the act of sex itself. Let's get it on, Talk Dirty to Me, Anything by Prince, all proven through tireless experimentation. But get ready though, you're probably not ready for one of them to be over the rainbow. Have you ever stopped to wonder what the rainbow is a metaphor for? Some people think it's just a sweet little song, but here's a Kansas farm girl, okay? Sheltered and fucking bored, the rainbow is the only exciting thing she sees in her physical and cultural landscape. Basically, Dorothy Gale is expressing what all young men and women experience when they leave home. So thrilled are they at the prospect of running their own sexual lives that the shift is figuratively from black and white to color. On the other side of that transition, though, what do they find? A bunch of little people huddled around a dead body. Now. It just worked. This whole show. And I thought it would. We did a show a few years ago about the songs that accompany 
losing your virginity specifically, and everything from Edge of Seventeen to the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack made appearances, and everyone went bananas for it. Because we all do it. We all have songs we attach to sexual experiences, whether it's the person we're with who just sang Mr. Roboto at karaoke and is now half-naked in our apartment, and so we'll forever associate Mr. Roboto with this guy wearing a Hamburglar t-shirt, or it's the songs that were just around, riding shotgun for our first times, bad times, last times, weird times, and once in a lifetimes. All right, our story for this episode is from me. I know, I don't do this a lot, put up one of my stories that I've told live, but this one went over well, so I thought, why the hell not? So this is me in Austin telling a really wonderful crowd the perils of dating people you work with at restaurants and how a song like the next episode showed up in the last place I ever expected it to. I worked in restaurants for 10 years, 1994 to 2004. And I don't know, it was always my experience that if I was working at a particular restaurant and I was not entangled in some kind of sexual complication with someone else at that restaurant, I'm not sure I worked at that restaurant. And it's a bad idea to get mixed up in all of that, but it's just, I did it a lot. And my MO was always just start at a new restaurant and then figure out who was who and what's going on and then pick the guy that I was going to like or date or fuck in the walk-in refrigerator. <laughs> and in the fall of 2002, I, I was 24 years old and I was working at a restaurant in Philadelphia. That's where I was living at the time. And the boy that I liked there was the bartender and his name was Dave. Dave was 30 at the time, and he had really sharp facial features and sandy blonde hair and cobalt blue eyes. And he was really quiet for a bartender, actually. Like, one of the other servers observed, you know, it's like, he's like, I don't get it. He's got a bar full of women, and he just stands there staring at the sink. That really made me like him, though, because I never, like, was really attracted to the charismatic, overly charming guys that would say stuff to you like, our children would have amazing eyes. Eyes. No, gross. I always like the boys who, in a room full of giggling possibilities, would rather stare at the sink. And so, after a while, Dave and I figure out that we like each other, and so we start dating. And as I've said, I've done my share of restaurant dating, even one time working my way up to restaurant power couple. That's where you, as a server or a bartender, date a manager. <laughs> It was great. But I was particularly excited about this one because it used to be that I was insecure enough that I would just date whoever I found out liked me first. And if, and if you asked me like what I liked about this guy or that guy, I would be hard pressed to tell you because mostly what I liked was that they liked me. But this time I could tell you what I liked about Dave. I could and I will. I loved that we could speak in quotes from Mr. Show or Curb Your Enthusiasm or South Park and one time, he even quoted word for word the Damn It Freddy scene from Truth or Dare. 
And if you have never seen a straight man do this, it is glorious. One time we went on a date uh, to see Cirque du Soleil when Cirque du Soleil was in town. And as two men in geometric face makeup and black feathered headdresses and pleather bike shorts flew above the crowd on tiny trapezes, Dave leaned over and said, I have a dead or alive video exactly like this. <laughs> Dave knew more about music than anyone I had ever met. And I could shoddily sing him like whatever song I only knew like five notes to. Dave, what's that song that's like, din da da, din do do. And he would totally know, like that's din da da. <laughs> It is. And so he was the best, too, to go record shopping with, which I love doing. And he would tell me his method for buying 45s, and that is to just buy a 45 based on whether or not you like the cover. You know, you may discover a band or a song that otherwise you never would have known about, and if you don't like it, you're only out two bucks. And then one time we were record shopping on South Street in Philly, and I was being indecisive, and, and he realized the gravity of this situation, though, and he grabbed me by the shoulders and looked me in the eye and said, you may not find the chronic on vinyl ever again. <laughs> buy it now. This guy, like, I really liked him. He was very much me. And even though I, I knew I was moving to New York the following year, and even though we had only been dating, you know, two months or so, I started to imagine what it would be like if maybe he came with me. And I even got to see a preview of that one day because we took a day trip to New York, and it was very important to him that we go and see CBGBs, just, you know, from the outside. And at the time, I, I hadn't seen it yet. And uh, when we got there, though, it was actually covered in scaffolding. And he very honestly said, like, not tongue-in-cheek or sarcastic or smarmy at all, just, I didn't want you to see it like this. Neither of us realizing that we were only four years away from not being able to see it at all. So one afternoon, we are sitting on the two ca uh, chairs in his kitchen, and his big, fat, black cat, Sadie, was just plopped on the floor between us. Dave is quiet, and he's not usually the most talkative person, but this is like an edgy quiet. And so I ask what's wrong, and he says, you know, I was thinking that maybe we should just be friends. I was blindsided! I did not see that coming. And I, I mean, we had only taken that New York trip the week before, and what's more is I had just met some of his non-work friends in restaurant dating. That's like meeting someone's parents. <laughs> I, I, I asked him why he, he wanted to break up and he was telling me a bunch of things like well I don't think in the long run I would make a very good boyfriend or my apartment is too small or I've been reading this book lately on the habits of powerful people and I've been thinking about wearing more suits on a daily basis and why would you want to be with someone who's in limbo like that I didn't, I didn't get that last one at all like it all sounded like such bullshit to me and so I just I, I pressed him and I pressed him like why 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 do you want to break up? And eventually I backed him into a tight enough corner that he broke and blurted out, I don't like having sex with you. Now, we'd only had sex twice. I'd hooked up with a bunch of guys before, Dave, but I'd only actually had sex with one of them. And I thought I was doing it right, but maybe I wasn't. And I, I, I tried to remember every detail of the two times, two, two times, one, two, two times that we had had sex and I, I, I couldn't think of anything out of the ordinary, but I, maybe I didn't know from out of the ordinary. Maybe I all along thought that whatever it was I was doing was super hot, but to anybody who'd ever been with me or around me, I was known as old thorny vagina. <laughs> I don't know. I'm scared of that. And I, I asked him, like, well, what was wrong with it? 
And he says, I think maybe I'm too tall. Yeah, he's 5'10". Or he said, I think maybe you're just really inexperienced and so you're not good at it yet. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I just, I really just didn't like it. And that would have been an awesome place for him to stop talking. <laughs> but then he said, it's weird, you know, too, because like usually you're with someone and you don't really like them very much and they're, they're kind of awful, but you stay with them because you really love having sex with them and the sex is great. But this is like the opposite of that. And I, I've never been in this situation before because I really like you and I really like hanging out with you. I, I just don't, I, I don't like having sex with me, I know. And then I, I didn't know what else to say. And so we talked for hours more. And I'm, I'm, I'm just asking him what specifically it was that I did that made me bad at sex. If a shortstop is a bad shortstop, it's because he can't catch a ground ball to save his life. So that's what he has to work on, grounders. I wanted to know what my grounders were. And he just, he wouldn't answer me. He couldn't give me any, anything concrete. And we're just talking in circles. Like for six hours, so much time is going by. The sun went down. It started to rain. <laughs> and I've, I've had a few conversations like that in my life where you do. You just, you hammer a point so hard and so much that eventually the conversation can't help but just disintegrate almost back into small talk because that's all you can handle because it's just been too heavy for too long. And I think that's what probably happened when I I just said, Dave, what's that song that's like, da-da-da-da-da? And he says, the next episode, Dr. Dre. And I said, okay. And then I left because we just broke up. And the next time I saw him, though, which was a couple of days later at work, he had burned that entire album for me, 2001. That plus 10 other albums because he really liked me. The next couple of weeks, I become obsessed with what it means to be good or bad at sex. And is that a thing? Or is it just come down to the chemistry between person A and person B and person C and person D and person E? Whatever is your situation. And, and I, ask, I ask friends, you know, if it's a thing to be good at sex. And I ask friends to ask their friends. And then I ask friends, like, if they could tell me specifically what it is they do when they're having sex from beginning to end. And then people start you know, wanting to talk to me. <laughs> Understandable, I understand. It's just I was so focused on it, I had to know. I had to have these answers because in my mind, I was gonna have the chance to sleep with Dave again and, and I had everything to prove. And so, I, because my friends wouldn't tell me and because this is 2002 uh, and I personally was not yet Googling everything, I could only think of one other option and that was porn. Now, when I say porn, I don't mean hardcore. I, at that time, I would not have known how to acquire that. And when I say porn, I'm talking more about late night Cinemax. <laughs> Specifically, a show called Beverly Hills Bordello. Did anyone watch that? It was so great. And what I would do is, I would put a tape in the VCR. I had one of those TVs that had the VCR built right in. I'd put a tape in the VCR, and then I'd just hit record, and then record overnight while I slept. It's like eight hours of footage, like especially they had a marathon. And then, oh, and then I would label the tape Night Court Episodes. <laughs> which is like, 
which is probably, it's like a very, uh, probably unnecessary trick that I learned from guys in high school, because that's what they would do. They would label their porn tapes popular movies, so they could just leave them out or inconspicuously pass them around at school, because for a while I was like, why is everyone so into Predator 2? <laughs> I was like, what's that? I, I was, so I would do that. I would, I would tape it overnight, and then the next night I would watch that catch, you know, whatever it is I got. And it would be easy, even logical, to think that I was watching Beverly Hills Bordello and I was masturbating because I was alone or because I was trying to figure out what it is I liked sexually. Oh, and then maybe if I did that, I would become better at sex because I would know what I liked and what I would be looking for and all of that, but I wasn't doing that. What I was doing was closer to when you watch a video of P90X and then you follow along by doing P90X. (laughs) So when Candy got on all fours, Dana got on all fours. (laughs) And I would know, and I'd mimic, you know, the arch of her back and the pout of her lips and the timing of the oohs and the ahs and the rhythm of all of that. I was determined. I was going to know what good sex at least looked like. And from who better than the gals at Beverly Hills Bordello? But every night as I was doing this, I was just, you know, waiting and, and for and thinking about the opportunity. And maybe it would go like that Dave was closing one night and I was closing. And so, what the hell, let's go get drinks. And we would go get drinks and then we would be stumbling home and we would arrive at his apartment first because that was on the way. And he would say, you want to come up for just one drink? And I would say, sure. And I would go up and I would show him what I learned so that this boy that I really liked wouldn't just look at me and think bad sex. But then about a month and a half later, he started dating someone else. And her, her name was Jeanette. I didn't know very much about her other than that she looked rad. She had the, the heavy bangs and the dark rim glasses and the sleeves of tattoos and everything. And she worked at the restaurant next door. And so, like, I would see them. I'd see them walking down the street. Or she would come in and visit him and she would sit at the bar. And he wouldn't so much as glance at the sink. And I would stand, you know, far away from them, but like positioned strategically so that I could stare at her and wonder if maybe just this was one of those girls that he didn't like, but he liked having sex with her. And so here she was. And what is it that she was doing right that I was doing wrong? I didn't know. And I'd never get to know. So I started fucking the manager. Thanks. (laughs) By the way, I still have the chronic that I bought on vinyl, but I have no idea whatever happened to 2001 or the rest of the burn CDs. And no air quotes around that statement. I have no idea. I just really don't know. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And hey, if you're in or around New York City on Wednesday, January 21st, come see us at QED in Astoria. Stories about songs from Jeffrey Joseph, Mariah McCarthy, Rebecca Vigil, and Noah Tarnow. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and right where you found us. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>